Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. The way my team works, I have like a, I have local reporters spread across the entire continent, um, and we all work together really closely. So when it's an election in one country, uh, that person doesn't work in an isolated manner. They work together with the other fact checkers, even if they're based elsewhere, because misinformation knows no boundaries. So um, there's a lot of sort of mudslinging that might happen in countries adjacent to, to Kenya, for example. So collaboration was key. Welcome to Needlestack, the podcast for professional online research. I'm your host, Matt Ashburn, and yes, you can fact check me on that. And I'm Jeff Phillips, tech industry veteran and curious to a fault. Today, we are kicking off our series on fact checking and debunking. So with the U.S. midterms just a couple months away, and there will no doubt be a lot of attention on fact checking candidate and pundit claims debunking the latest conspiracy theories, and I'm sure just more fun to come during the elections. So to get us in a fact-checking mindset when we're dealing with online research, we're joined today by a very special guest, Nina Lemparski. And now Nina has spent nearly 20 years in the world of journalism, including as a journalist uh, for the BBC. Her experience has spanned every continent. But what's interesting is that in her current role, she leads AFP's award-winning digital verification team in Africa. Nina, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You make me sound very illustrious. I like how you sort of presented that. Um, but yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. It is very illustrious. We're super excited. Um, so let's start with this digital verification team. Uh, that's, that's what kind of connected us. Could you tell us a little bit about how you arrived in that role and what the purpose of that team is? Yeah, so um, AFP, just for those who may not notice, uh, is actually short for Agence France Presse. It's one of the world's top news agencies. And so um, we have a very long-standing history of uncovering news for clients who include a you know, massive bunch of media companies around the world. And um, the reason we launched the fact-checking department sort of goes back to 2016, really, to your election in the US and with the arrival of um, Donald Trump, when we saw sort of a previously, um, you know, un, sort of just this incredible amount of disinformation hitting um, social media. And um, in France, we had a uh, election the following year, and we were kind of worried uh, that a similar things would be happening here. We had a far-right candidate with certain ties to Russia, um, and we just felt that it would be a good thing to monitor how, how this election would um, unfold. So what happened was AFP hired its very first fact checker in 2017 and then created an alliance with a whole bunch of other uh, media outlets, both French ones, but also international ones. And they all fact checked um, presidential campaign speeches, basically. So all the candidates running in that race were being put under the, in the spotlight. 
and everything they said was being um, debunked by a bunch of you know um, reporters. So that's kind of how it started. My own, and then well, since then, this was in 2017. Now in 2022, we've got over 130 people working in the fact check department, all kept very busy on literally every continent. Um, and I started working in my current role three years ago. So I was a foreign, as you pointed out, I've been like a journalist for a long time. I was a foreign correspondent in various places. I've covered a whole bunch of topics, um, but primarily politics, a lot of different elections, um, the migrant crisis, the Iran talks. Um, so I have a personal interest in kind of um, the rhetoric around the news story. Uh, I also have an interest in sort of, um, I would say, the far right, the far left. And um, so when this role came up to uh, grow the fact-checking team in Africa, uh, I thought it was a really interesting sort of approach to media and sort of um, looking at news stories, not so much telling you what something is, which is what a traditional news story will do, but rather looking at what something isn't, although it claims to be that. So that's kind of what fact-checking really does and what differentiates it from a normal news story. So that's kind of it. Uh, that's really fascinating, Nina. Thank you for sharing that. I'm wondering, as you're standing up a team like this, uh, maybe it's a, a new capability, right, in some organizations, what's the process you go through to train them, to develop that investigative tradecraft, to make sure that the investigations meet the standards of an organization like AFP? So um, all the major news um, fact-checking organizations around the world are part of the IFCN, that's the International um, Fact-Checking Network. And um, we are all signatories to their charter, which, you know, obliges you to be transparent in your funding, your sources, your reporting, be neutral. Um, and so as in order to join them, you have to go through a training process and essentially like ensure that all of your reporters know how to use uh, fact checking tools, um, know how to verify visuals. Like, there's a lot of stuff out there. The really great thing about fact checking is that most, well, I want to see a really big majority of the tools are free. Um, some of them, the more pushed ones, you will have to pay for, like satellite images. If you want to get really high quality images, you'll have to pay for that service. But unless you're like a military hardware expert who needs to see the ground really up close, you can get by with like free software, for example, Google Maps or Google Earth. Like that's totally fine. So yeah, so I guess we're not some of the fact check organizations out there, like you may have heard of Cat, who are kind of leaders in the field. Um, they do really amazing things and sort of uncover, you know, um, so they, they work on mass grave investigations, for example, things like that. Whereas we, um, we kind of focus just on a broader, uh, sort of just anything that is in the news, essentially. Um, so uh, we really look at anything verifying like a doctored photo or video all the way to political claims that could spark violence on the ground. So, yes, it's a pretty broad canvas that we have. Um, but we don't do what we don't particularly do is like long term deep investigations the way Ballincat um, does. So we have a slightly different limit. But that's kind of what we do. So you sign up to the IFCN and then you have to obviously, every year you get sort of monitored as well. And they, you know, they, they, they verify that you are doing a good job, basically, and that you're up to standards. And one of the major world topics right now, obviously, is the conflict in Ukraine. And we've seen a, a marked increase and in, uh, in the attention given to amateur sleuths and researchers out there on the internet. Lots of really incredible information that, uh, we really haven't had that uh, level of visibility before in a conflict like this. So it's pretty interesting to see. I'm wondering, as a journalist, uh, what's your relationship or view of these amateur uh, or independent researchers? Uh, is there a place for them uh, in, in your work uh, or, or is there a different view on that? No, I think there's definitely a place for them. As you point out, I think a lot of um, amateur researchers, especially for the Ukraine conflict, for example, they are military hardware experts. They take an interest in it. Um, some of them are ex-army. 
uh, others have an intelligence security intelligence background i mean i work with that in the same way that i work with any source i never take just one source for granted i would not run anything that unless it's an afp correspondent um i think generally speaking we definitely look at more than two or three sources um but yeah, I guess the better ones end up having quite a good reputation. I certainly follow OSINT experts online. We had a lot of Ukraine disinformation Africa. There's a very strong, in some countries, a very strong anti-NATO sentiment. So they take a strong, and then pro-Putin sentiment as well. So um, we saw an astonishing amount of disinformation. Some of that definitely involved like images of um, weaponry and so on. And so then you have to kind of go and look um, you know, you do look at what, what, what amateur researchers do. But as I said, I think it's just kind of you have to just follow your gut and make sure that, like, as we say, don't trust anyone. But if you have like two or three sources and they all kind of match up um, and you kind of can cross reference it with your own reporters on the ground, then there's a pretty good chance. And with other experts, you know, like renowned experts, then there's a pretty good chance that it's true. So, yeah, so it's all part of a bigger ecosystem. I wouldn't just rely on one person, but I definitely think that's like it's great to have them for sure. That makes a lot of sense. And yes, we can't trust. I don't know what to trust anymore when I'm reading things. <laughs> so cynical, but yes, sadly. <laughs> um, well, we mentioned at the top of the episode that the U.S. midterms are fast approaching. So, are there are there any challenges of fact checking during election cycles, or or any trends that you're seeing in elections, you know, from around the world that deba- that demand fact checking or make it more complicated? Yeah, I think when I say don't trust any anyone, like definitely don't trust anyone in elections. Um, I mean, I haven't like worked on U.S. elections, but I do follow them very closely. I've obviously colleagues who have um, debunk uh, candidates over there. I, from our experience on African elections, um, it's definitely the case that uh, both camps or several sides, more than certainly one side, pushes disinformation. One um, trend that we witnessed in, for example, the recent Kenyan election was um, politicians hiring influencers. Influencers are really hot, obviously. You know, they've got a huge following. And um, so they had these sort of these influencer troll factories and these little armies of, of online sort of, yeah, social media warriors who kind of go out and like in very targeted campaigns just simultaneously spread a lot of, on the one hand, disinformation against rival candidates, but then also sort of really kind of nice stories about the candidate. And so when you have things like that happening, um, on a large scale, it's obviously quite difficult to sort of fact check that and sort of keep on top of the speed of it. Um, so that's one thing. And then I also think what's really useful in election time is you should know your stats. You need to have like a team of people who know exactly what the figures are when it comes to unemployment, what a candidate's sort of achievements have been in the past. Candidates love to throw around statistics, percentages. Um, and so the more you know your background on that, the better and the the quicker you can react to sort of fact-checking what they're saying. Yeah, speaking of elections and world events, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the recent Kenyan election probably was a, a hot topic for your team. Can you talk a bit about some of the work that went into to that recent event and uh, some of the fact-checking that took place there? Yeah, so uh, the way my team works, I have like a I have local reporters spread across the entire continent, um, and we all work together really closely. So when it's an election in one country, uh, that person doesn't work in an isolated manner. They work together with the other fact checkers, even if they're based elsewhere, because misinformation knows no boundaries. So um, there's a lot of sort of mudslinging that might happen in countries adjacent to, to Kenya, for example. So collaboration was key. Um, we did bring in an extra person to really just help focus on campaign speeches, for example, to make sure that they could monitor the different um, candidates. We did see a lot of... Um, so this is a this is a phenomenon that's really 
um, sort of recurring in Africa is like fake headlines, uh, you know, screenshots of um, front pages from newspapers that were doctored or like uh, TV stations, tweets being doctored. So, I mean, you can, you, can, you can really manufacture those things very, very easily. I could literally show you in like in two seconds how to, how to fake a tweet from, you know, Joe Biden. I mean, it's the easiest thing to do. So we see a lot of that. And I think when people, the better, the more good news habits they have, the less likely they will be to take it for granted. But I think, unfortunately, in a very fast moving media environment, you get something sent on your WhatsApp and you'll be like, oh, wow, this is crazy. And you just forward it to the contacts in your, you know, in your little book. And I think um, we saw a lot of that. We saw things kind of going viral very quickly on, 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 on um, this messaging platforms. Uh, but yeah, we were afraid also that there could be violence. Like Kenyan um, elections in previous years had been marked by deadly violence. And um, luckily for us so far, things have kind of gone mostly, have, it's been mostly peaceful. Um, but there was a moment where it was the, the, the commission, the electoral commission was a bit slow on releasing the result. And um, that's certainly something that you would have witnessed in the US as well, is when there is that space of tension, when, when results are very, very close, when we're talking about 2%, um, there's a lot of distrust that can fall into that space and disinformation then really can run rampant. And in Kenya, we had several electoral monitors from overseas as well as Amnesty International and other um, civil um, societies who basically issued statements warning of you know, not being transparent enough in the way you do your counts, for example, not being fast enough and just warning specifically of the threat of online disinformation in election times when yeah, when things kind of don't go quite according to plan, basically. Yeah, I think that's that's an important uh, event, and it's a great example of how fact-checking can play a, a critical role in, in reporting. It, it really is a, an essential foundational element now. One thing that comes to mind is that media consumption varies greatly uh, around the world, uh, certainly by region, but also by culture. So, for example, in areas that may be more developing in the world or areas where there's a strong distrust of established institutions, people may not get their news from traditional media sources. Uh, they may not go to the newspaper or television station. They may get their news from a, a WhatsApp group or other types of messaging or word of mouth. And I'm thinking back to an instance uh, at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020, I was in Puerto Rico and I was in a WhatsApp group that locals there use to communicate with one another and to share news. And there was a, to me at least, a very obviously false screenshot of a uh, more established media institution. And the screenshot had a headline and a, a quick summary that essentially told people to beware that the government is responding strongly to COVID-19 and to close all of your doors and windows and be in the house by 7 p.m. because the government is dispatching helicopters to spray some kind of uh, antiviral uh, gas or something like that to eradicate COVID-19. Story was completely false, but actually I saw firsthand how that can instill a sense of panic in people and how it can affect people's lives. Even though the story was false and, and to me it seemed a bit preposterous because of some of the distrust that people there have of established institutions, that story spread like wildfire. Can you speak a bit about how um, maybe the differences in media consumption can affect your work and uh, sort of in some cases, I guess, even compete with the work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean that's a really good example because when I when I when I took on that job, it was literally a month before the pandemic broke out, and uh, it was wild because everyone just had to come together and find a way of um, fact-checking medical claims that we weren't even sure of. We didn't even know like what was actually happening. You know, things were very directives were changing very quickly. We we knew so little about how this virus would unfold. So that is definitely the ultimate space, um, the ultimate environment for fake news to kind of just um, erupt. 
And um, I guess the way we approached it was to, I mean, one of the functions of the fact-checking, of, of doing fact-checking is that you want to ed educate but without patronizing your public. So we tell people exactly how we, how we get from A to Z, hopefully to Z, sometimes not quite, but, you know, that's the idea. What tools we've used. Um, we have a page on our website that tells you our, our methodology. It links out to different, like, online tools. So there was this aspect of, first of all, saying, okay, um, you know, you, you can go and verify these things um, by yourself, like, and just maybe next time the main thing is to just, like, time people breathe, breathe, like, three or four times before hitting share. Um, but it was quite difficult because, you know, like, speaking from the African point of view, there is a lot of distrust towards Western medicine, towards Western pharmaceutical companies. So we definitely saw all of the U.S. sort of um, conspiracy theories found fertile ground also in, in African countries. Um, I think it's a fight that you have to uh, take on on various levels, like um, you are collaborating with other fact-check organizations. So unlike if you just work for The Wire, you will not call up your competitor to tell them about a scoop that you're having. But if you work for a fact on the fact-checking side, um, there's so much stuff out there that we know we have to create alliances. So that's one thing that we did. We teamed up with other fact-check organizations in Africa and um, with the WHO's branch in Africa. And so we were able to just like really stay on top of claims that involve COVID um, and sort of shared information with each other. So there's that. And then um, I think it's also just making people aware of like, you have to be really dispassionate in the way that you write a fact check, right? You cannot ever let your own sort of beliefs let flow into that. You may have analysis pieces on the wire that will kind of indicate what side of the, you know, what side you're on in, in terms of your media orientation, but for fact checkers, you can't. So we try, yeah, you have to just really verify every single thing that you write, that there's no bias, um, but it's an ongoing process. It's also talking to governments. It's kind of helping governments to just be more transparent in the, in, in, in what they tell people. And then I think the main sentence that we introduced into so many of our debunks at the time was to just say this is what we know right now so never to make it like this is an absolute definite that's for sure for the next you know like 100 years like this is currently this is what research is telling us but there's still a lot of unknowns so that's kind of you know what we were trying to do but it was so fast moving that yeah we learned as we were going and i mean you know there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there and in terms of COVID, the one thing i've also learned is definitely if somebody um, completely rejects um, the current sort of political system and mainstream media, like the, the, the governments and stuff, if they all think there's this huge conspiracy going on, there's really nothing you can say because you are part of that system. Um, so you, you just have to stick to your facts and I think don't get involved in any argument, like just always be very polite and just say, these are the facts, these are the facts, these are the facts, which drives people nuts, but it kind of worked. <laughs> I haven't gotten into a fight with anyone, so you know. Well, that's that's good. We don't. We need I could have, and fight. I didn't. <laughs> At least no physical fights, perhaps. Well, no, certainly sure. not a physical fight. No. Well, um, so I mean, if I continue with that, with the absolute volume of misinformation and cl questionable claims out there, first of all, love that there's an organization you know that's that's about fact checking, and that you know organizations such as yourself in, have invested in that. But you certainly can't fact check everything. Um, What's the process for deciding what to check and and go ahead and, and and focus on versus what to just let slide by? So the key elements that we we look for are um, the potential for harm, the potential for misleading people into 
yeah, not making important decisions or making them on the wrong on the basis of wrong information. We do look at virality, but something being viral, I really don't like that word. It's like essentially it doesn't mean anything. Being viral in Nigeria is very different to something being viral in Ethiopia, being different to being viral in Poland. Like it just depends on your population. It depends on people's sort of media consumption habits and so on. Um, but certainly the key element is to look at a piece of information, say, okay, is somebody here um, implying something or showing something that could potentially get the user who's reading this so angry that they would go on, on the street and, for example, hunt down something? Or would you would you join a protest? Or would you not go voting because somebody's posted a video of a polling station and said, look at this violence, like showing clashes, and so people are scared and they don't go out? So that's kind of something that we that's how you measure it i mean and you can get very silly fact checks you can get really people like create doctored videos of you know i don't know like a donkey on a church steeple i mean you're not going to um it's fine to fact check this if everyone believes in it but that's not really what we want to do we're not we're not we're not there to like um kill humor or you know stop people from making jokes or being creative that's not the point the point is really to make sure that um that not that that this information that can potentially harm people, yeah. Or, or you know, for example, also it's okay for somebody to say like um, this traditional medicine will heal, like will treat your asthma. That's absolutely fine, or, or will will help you know alleviate pains of cancer. That's absolutely fine. But we just want to tell people it's not like you can do that, but don't not go to see a doctor. Like essentially, you kind of want to just make sure that somebody understands that there's always more information than the one they have at hand. So that's sort of the, yeah, I think these are like the keys, like sort of what's the what's the level of harm? And then, yeah, how viral is it? If somebody is saying something really outrageous, but it's only being shared by like 200 people in Nigeria, there's no point in doing something on like that because you're going to attract more attention to it and you don't want to push something out into the limelight when it's currently still quite hidden. Yeah, absolutely. The um, I guess in closing, as we start to close out today, do you have any closing words of advice or, or other information that you'd like to share with folks that may be in the journalism field or other investigative roles? So a couple of things, maybe if I can do a little plug, but like um, AFP has actually recently launched um, a 10 module course on advanced, on basic and advanced fact-checking fact techniques. So it's all digital investigation techniques. It's free for anyone who's a journalist or a journalism student. It was developed with the Google News Initiative. It's really solid. One of my colleagues on my team helped create it. And um, yeah, it's really brilliant. It covers anything from basic sort of visual verification to more advanced, you know, searches on eyewitness accounts and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and I would also say, yeah, just, um, I mean, the, the really the, the, the key element is to never share anything that you're not sure of. Just take a breather. The stronger your bias the stronger your emotion, that's exactly when you should not share it. It's like when you're angry, don't make that call. Go for a walk and then come back and then speak up. Like it's a similar thing. And then for journalists specifically, like for researchers, I would say um, set up a Google alert with your name. Um, clear your cache. Log out of all your social media accounts and do searches for yourself and see what's out there. What do people know about you? Um, I think that's really important in terms of your own safety and yeah, when, you, when you're out there investigating, spying and sort of just, yeah navigating that field. That's fantastic advice. And that's advice that we've given even here on the podcast ourselves uh, many times over. So appreciate you sharing that. 
Uh, well, Nina, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, that's our guest, Nina Lamparski. She's with AFP. And if you like what you heard, you can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch episodes on YouTube and view transcripts and other information on our website at authenticate.com slash needlestack. That's authentic with the number eight.com slash needlestack. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at needlestackpod and also join us next week. Uh, we'll be back with more on fact-checking and debunking. Lots of really good information. We'll see you then. Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8, .com.